0: New York-born but Connecticut-raised Rick Moody is among the elite novelists of our generation, though he's much too humble to regard himself as such. His literary works include works such as Garden State and the critically acclaimed The Ice Storm, which was adapted into a feature film. He has written a series of short stories and two memoirs, including The Long Accomplishment, which was published in 2019. His creative endeavors extend to music, as he is a musician and composer, and belongs to the group The Wingdale Community Singers. Moody currently teaches at Brown University, but has taught at schools such as Yale, Princeton, and NYU in the past.
1: Rick Moody, welcome to The Creative Process. Thanks for having
0: me.
2: I mean, obviously, life coaching isn't the, your main activity, but you know, we've had exchanges before and you were explaining why you do it. And I thought this was so beautiful. I do the coaching now just to try to help and to be upfront about caring. There's no other purpose. Using language to care is a good way to use language. It's against coolness and detachment. And I, I think that's such a, a beautiful endorsement for why we read and why we write. And I'm thinking now uh, you're soon to be publishing a memoir about the long accomplishment. And if you'd like to discuss that, you know, within, with relation to what you were, your life coaching and that, what you just said there.
3: Um, the paradox of the life coaching is that I've been so busy teaching this year that I haven't done very much of it. Uh, uh-huh. or, but maybe that means simply that the, the life coaching portion of my, of my writing activity is being given over to Brown students right now, <laughs> of whom one was David at one point. But I stand by what I said and I feel like, um, you know, humanist values, which were the sort in which I was educated as a young writer, um, do in some ways seem antique and, uh, and that's sort of a, a counterproductive idea for me personally. I don't want to live or work in a in a sort of post-humanist modality exactly. And so the whole idea of the life coaching thing was to put me in a situation where I had to use language, you know, as a support for humanism as a philosophy and as a vocabulary and that continues to be the case and the memoir arises out of a very similar um trajectory in that it's about you know acknowledging how inefficient i was uh at relationships as a younger person and how um sort of thinking more practically about what it is that I really wanted and writing about it in a life coach setting and elsewhere um, have put me in a position where I want the things that I wasn't sure I wanted before and writing about it is a natural outgrowth of that.
1: I I suppose uh, just for our listeners sake um could you elaborate a little more on what that humanist philosophy is
3: i suppose i would say that sort of human psychology the human emotional field and human consciousness are at the center of creative activity um and that i make work in order to try to to um articulate that and work that articulates those things for me we were talking about shakespeare before shakespeare's a good example work that that takes that as a as a sort of first cause uh matters more to me and i came up sort of in experimental writing circles and uh um and it's come to seem to me as an adult that sometimes experiment for its own sake can feel cerebral or sort of hollowed out as an art making approach. Um, and I, at this point in my life, am resistant to that a little bit. So reminding myself that a sort of humanist approach is valuable. Um, keeps me honest and helps me to make work that I think communicates better um, and which has a sort of uh, clear and straightforward idea of why we make work in the first place.
1: That's really cool. I can definitely get behind that. Uh, Mia, I've, I've got a follow-up question. Do you want to ask one?
2: Yeah, there was a few things that came to mind. Yes, how the way you're voice has, you know, adapted with each subsequent book and, and just, you know, spread out to celebrate consciousness and the inner voice. That's really beautiful. But then another thing that you said was that you've come to value things that you didn't know you valued. And and I thought what I was thinking of it, that it was in terms of like marriage or, you know, stable relationships, as I think back to your your earlier books uh, that you're known for, uh, perhaps um, the ice storm or things like that, where there's a certain kind of skepticism. And is that what you also meant? And then the third, I just many things, you made me want to ask many questions. Um, I do wonder why, and I wonder if it's frustrating for you, this period that we're going through in America, in the world where the written word, the spoken word is not except by these these small p- circles which care deeply about it. It seems to be, um, I don't know, people don't care about it as much, and it's dispiriting.
3: It's definitely the case that sort of skepticism about relationships that characterized my earlier work seems re- regrettable to me now. Um, and um, And it seems like it was pyrotechnical at the time. <laughs> or you know just for the sake of of display or because i thought that that was funny or something um but i don't I feel that way now um i feel like it's funny i was reading a, a book the other day um, it was actually a novel by by Rachel Cusk. I'm I'm really interested in Rachel Cusk right now, and uh, she's recounting a a sort of a workshop story, and uh, and a a younger writer is sort of besieging an older writer with questions, and the older writer says, "I only have thirty or thirty five more years," <laughs> and. Uh, Meaning, you know, um, uh, let's try and be efficient about this process. And, um, and I feel, um, with respect to the issue of relationships, uh, like I only have 30 or 35 years (laughs) and, and that I, part of the reason that I'm an okay life coach is because I botched so many things. But if you really want to know how to do stuff, you can't always be asking people who are great at it. You should sometimes ask people with a lot of regrets what they think. Um, and so The Ice Storm as a novel to me now looks um, like the work of a young person. Um, and And some of the things that it's so kind of fast and loose about in terms of family and what's important I've sort of swung around to identify more with the parents point of view than with the children's point of view um and as to our present moment um I mean I can only say what effect it has on me and the effect that it has on me is that uh you know, a, a small audience for literary writing is uh, a thing that helps sort of keep me honest. And um, and that's sort of okay. You know, I mean, James Joyce, the first printing of Ulysses in, in, when Sylvia Beach made them was 500 copies. Um, so that was the audience for Ulysses at the time of publication. That means that the, that the um, you know, global literary audience is small, has always been small, um, but it still ha- is capable of having tremendous impact down the road. So if you look at it as though, um, gee, it's a shame that we don't have more cultural impact or that our spot in the cultural food chain doesn't seem to be what it once was, um that's an approach that can become uh paralyzing and i tend to think that it's not about the size of the audience it's about the it's about the depth of the impact with the audience so i feel like if i have a few readers but it meant a lot to them that's still a a really um that's the thing that I should still be grateful for.
1: I do. I one question that does strike to me um, is that you're uh, you're an author who's written a lot about mental illness, and I and sort of I'm intrigued by what you're just saying about humanist philosophy because I, I think I follow it as well. But that's neither here nor there. Um, how do you you write a lot about um? I was reading Gambit Declined, which I know is a much earlier work, but you write about Bennett's axioms, you know, sort of truths that he states about the world. How do your characters and your writing navigate between philosophy and psychology? To the extent
3: that they have philosophy in them or they popularize certain questions of philosophy, it's simply because that's stuff that's on my mind. Mm. Um, But I, I would... Prefer that they didn't seem heavy-handed in terms of ideas, but rather that ideas are dramatized in the people in the stories. Um, You know, that said, I've been... I'm on a Heidegger jag right now. and, uh, And I have been thinking a lot about what would be the vessel or container in which I could talk about some ideas in Heidegger uh, where it wouldn't seem like I was just vomiting up a lot of philosophy <laughs> understood uh,
1: Mia
2: do you think of music as you're writing or in this um, this memoir soon to be published would do you associate certain books with music how does that work
3: I think that the relationship between music and the actual books themselves is constantly changing um but there are certain books like after the ice storm i wrote a book called uh purple america and much of that book was written while listening to uh blood on the tracks by bob dylan and i can't think about that book now without thinking about uh Blood on the Tracks, um, but it changes all the time. And, and the stuff that I like now tends to be mostly uh, not song-oriented. I like uh, instrumental music, um, or at least when I'm working, I like instrumental music. And um, I really like drone-oriented instrumental music so i listen to a lot of you know pretty experimental things that probably would drive away some listeners because they're highly repetitive or you know melodically um blunt uh but that sort of leaves me space to think um and suggests emotional terrain without being heavy-handed about it yeah so that's kind of the diet right now there's this label in pound ridge called 12k and they make sort of super abstract ambient flavored records that are not electronic it's mostly done with acoustic instruments and uh i really like 12k right now
2: you know, you write so well about America. But when uh, you've written, when you've brought your fiction to like outer space, like what would that music, what would be setting the the mood for that for you? Or what would help you arrive at that, um, those kind of um, otherworldly settings?
3: I can't remember exactly what was on repeat at that point. But I will say that that not long after that, I got really obsessed with this 70s album uh that is an album from the 1970s called symphonies of space where they took um radio signals that they had harvested from outer space and attempted to sort of make a musical collage out of them it's very hard to come by that album it's not in print anymore but if you're smart you can find i'm sure you could hear some of it on youtube and it always to me suggests some of this um sort of uh infinite emptiness of space musically in a way that i find really beautiful and actually my wife really loves that album too it sort of became a thing between us symphonies of space
1: why marriage uh you know you said you said you know with your life coach stuff you want to write about stuff you have you want to write about things you have experience with and it's Obviously uh marriage is a very captivating topic. Why specifically marriage and why specifically now?
3: Mm. I mean the memoir is partly about um about bad luck mm. uh, and we had a a very large helping of it after our marriage uh for about a year we had sort of um, event after event that you would put on the bad luck side of the register if you were totaling these things up and um, when I began writing the memoir it's less that I conceived of it as uh, oh I'm going to write a book about marriage mm. than that I conceived of it as uh, I'm in enough pain that I need to write about the things that are causing me pain so I wrote about this long period of bad luck and at the end of writing about it it seemed to me that what I was writing about was marriage so marriage becomes a a container for a writing project that was less systematically about the topic at its commencement
2: that's so nice when the well of course i imagine that's that that's how it would often work for you that you're you're just writing and writing, and then you find the subject you you don't have to decide upon it before you embark on a long project
3: yeah, there's because I'm reading heidegger uh, who it should be noted was a person who was complicated and failed in many ways in life and perhaps was worse even than that. Um, uh, But he sort of says that when you get close to being in a state of being, that you can then speak from that spot, that the goal is to speak from that spot, you know. Being speaks is one thing that heidegger says i think and um and i try to use the language um so that it comes from a spot in myself where it's not mediated by a bunch of thoughts about what genre is this in or where does it go in the bookstore or who's the audience for this um but just that there's language that sort of needs to be spoken, um, and that when it comes from that spot, it's coming from a, you know, a relatively deep place in my psychology, and um, and that's how the work needs to get done because that means it's more emotionally uh, pure or resonant, and then it's after the fact that you get into the business of sort of trying to summarize or digest what it is that you've done but the initial part of the work is just sequencing language and hoping that it comes from a fully engaged emotional spot
2: Sure. Well, I, I think, you know, definitely, I'm you were talking about like the, the contrast between some writers who are just heavy on story, but, um, you know, you, you focused on the inner voice. And so I'm thinking about you're speaking of containers. And um, I suppose that leads us to the, the hotels of North America, where, you know, it, it's not a story about hotels, per se.
3: So true. <laughs> um, I mean, That's another interesting case of influence passing back and forth uh, between Laurel and me. Because when Laurel was shooting the DNA portraits, uh, she was logging a lot of miles and staying in a lot of hotels. And uh, I'd been working on a different novel that went unfinished and often... Uh, I went on all these trips with Laurel and it was sort of in the midst of being on one of her business trips staying in a kind of dingy hotel it was actually in Norway uh, that I woke one day and thought um, why shouldn't I make the novel out of this experience because we were having it so often so um, you know it's another very clear case of trying to get the work to be um, shaped by life and fully integrated in life instead of sort of thinking about it according to market principles.
1: When you Google Rick Moody, maybe I should not say this then if you don't do it, but I feel like these are things you've heard. You either see Rick Moody is the best novelist of our generation or he is not. And I guess I wanted to ask because, uh, you know, in your writing and in your teaching, I would certainly say authenticity is something that really you you press on. You know, I remember when you told us uh, that genre, as you were just mentioning, is a bookstore problem and not an author problem. Um, I guess, do you read the critics and more than that, which do you like better, the, the good press or the bad press and which helps you write better?
3: I don't pay any attention to it. Um, I think you're alluding to a famous bad review I got. Um, I mean, I didn't read that. All right, cool. (laughs) I never read them. (laughs) I don't read the good ones. Um, So neither of them helps me write. Maybe Warhol was right about the weighing your press instead of reading your press thing, but um, publication is not of great interest to me writing is of great interest
2: and so yes because you know we had this exchange before and you had said at at some point so you're thinking about writing writing for like a small circle or or, or an individual reader and and you'd said and i don't mean to make things quite personal but at one point you said that you thought about um writing for your sister and there was an unfinished graphic novel um
3: well, you brought my sister up, so I will, I will address that for a moment <laughs> and say that uh, writing for my sister would be a really good idea for me. And um, uh, let me say for the point of view of listeners uh, that my sister is passed away and passed away in 1995 Um, and she's never far from my thoughts and I think sort of beginning to try to think about work in such a way that it that it relates to that memory or to the processing of grief um, that would all be a really good and valid approach to making something it's also true that my sister had a really um uh lively and enthusiastic sense of humor and especially that she would laugh uproariously um in a way that correlated to sort of how scurrilous your remarks were so the more scurrilous they were the more she laughed um and that i i've never quite uh found an audience as vital and rewarding as my sister nor felt um uh quite as much the sense of joy that i that i felt when my sister would laugh at something i had said it seems to me that you know engaging with your audience as though you had that kind of intimacy with them would be to write from a very strong place
2: yes and it's it's beautiful because i think of the challenge too of putting real people, whether they're, they're not going to be, it's hard, you can't do a facsimile, but putting the energy of real people, larger than life, people, people full of so much, people who are full of so many contradictions and, you know, the liveliness that you describe. um, How do you, how do you approach those challenges because it's hard to compress life into books although you you do it
3: i accept the failure of it a little bit um uh and i do the best i can you know to try to suggest the kind of complexity that you're talking about which i think you're exactly right is the right way to think about character you know i want people on the page i felt this way about hotels of north america that i wanted reginald morse to feel on the page exactly like um certain people that i know not in the sense that i wanted him to be like them but that i wanted him to sort of have the gravity and the heft that those people have um so that the reader would walk away from the book feeling like this is a person and and that you wouldn't discriminate against him uh, because he's fictional Um, I think that's the right approach and I think that's exactly coherent with having humanist values as a literary writer that you want the characters to feel exactly like human beings and that you treat them with the respect and the affection uh, with which you might treat other human beings that's that seems like a really good place to start with, thinking about character.
1: If I'm not mistaken, you know, sort of you you end uh, Hotels of North America by calling Morse. Well, the author version of you calls Morse a case study in loneliness.
3: Hmm.
1: And there's this idea, I think, from what I've what what I've been able to sort of scrounge up from your characters, and from your uh, from the situations that you put them in, that a lot of these situations aren't quite fixable would you agree with that yes and so i suppose when i was in your class we read a lot of epics a lot of you know human beings and not always human beings going on these quests and solving enormous problems and that sort of as a that's a self-motivating writing you know that's a it's like there's obviously there's going to be a next sentence a next word because you need to know how the problem gets solved what captivates you so much about people in situations that they can't necessarily solve what what causes the next word and sentence to flow when there's not necessarily something if even if there's something they're working towards it's not necessarily something they're going to get that's a really good question (laughs) thank you um i mean
3: i just think that the that the place that realism has gone to is a sort of Anti-heroic place, or a recognition that heroism in in the contemporary literary setting um, is sort of unheroic. Those people are um, besieged and often struggling, um, and getting to a place of sort of unvarnished certainty about the moral value of their struggle mm-hmm. is Folly in a way. It's hard to get to that place. Yeah. Um, so the task becomes less about, you know, writing with certainty about what's going to happen, what what the next turn of the plot is, and more about trying to describe accurately uh, what certain things feel like. There's a passage in Hotels of North America that's about um, Reginald Morse's. Uh, love for his daughter, um, you know, that comes in the midst of some pretty comic passages, but is, you know, more sort of high impact in terms of its emotional ambition, um, and it's just trying to tell the truth: mm-hmm. how do fathers feel about their children? That's what this passage tries to do. So, that's a basically a realistic approach to where the novel is now, which is to say um, it can be a thing that's observant and um, sort of clear-headed and and generous about how feelings feel.
2: And so, so speaking about feelings, and I guess going back to music and that this... I love this. You have this, as you were talking about, a a sense of loneliness in the fiction, and yet it can feel spiritual. Uh, At the same time, we don't feel lonely because we're sharing their inner thoughts. Uh, And you've also um, edited an anthology with um, our mutual friend, Darcy Stanky. Uh, And there was one thing that in in a previous exchange you said about um, what you wanted music to do in terms of feelings as... Tutola said his writing was to summon the ancient ones. That's what I want music to do. And I just love these insights uh, that I'm looking for the numinous and uncanny. Music has that way of getting getting to very deep feelings, stillness and awe and stuff like that. You're looking for that in your writing too, yes?
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, in a way I feel like the interview format leads me to sound like i feel like i have mastery over my work which i don't necessarily feel like i have but um bearing that in mind uh style in so far as style happens in what i do or have done it's really just musical thinking and um you know, so for example, the passage that I was just talking about in Hotels of North America, where Reg is talking about his daughter, is anaphoric. It's very repetitive. Um, uh, he says, I miss the child over and over again for a few pages. Um, and it's just an attempt to get a, a narrative tool to try to do what music does for me in its abstract way, which is articulate and sort of shape emotional events without having to talk about them and thus without having to sort of be clumsy or sentimental or repellent. Um, so I've been trying to get the prose to do that same thing.
2: I love that line too when you say, I miss the child, and I'm wondering what being a child, also being a father, has taught you about writing and characters.
3: It's taught me so much um, that to, to try to narrow it down to just the issue of character is to sort of um, uh, fail to deal with it comprehensively. But I guess I would say, that being a parent is a sort of triumph of intrapsychic experience. Um, you know, you really have to think about other people, and I didn't know always. I I talked a great game before I had kids, <laughs> um, but I I feel like my life was so organized around creative work that there were ways that other people were unprovable to me um but having kids doesn't allow you that um you know you engage with them and it comes from a sort of panoramic place in you and then it's possible to go back to other social relationships um rehabilitated by that experience of parenting you sort of do better with other people because you did better with your kids
2: do you remember your childlike perceptions? I mean, I'm interested in your son's perceptions, but also do you like just the, str- the strange ways you looked at the world and believe the world worked?
3: I mean, I can't remember in my own case exactly because it's seeming <laughs> far away now. But he, you know, he's right now he's very obsessed with Count Dracula. I don't know why, but he's just been talking a lot about Count Dracula. And yesterday he said, Dad. I need a coffin. So we went on Etsy because it's actually kind of hard to find a, a child-sized coffin for the obvious reasons. Yeah. So we went on Etsy and we found we found a place on Etsy where you could order child-sized coffins. Which, oh, needless wow. to say, I'm not going to order. But... It's
2: a womb, though. Of course it's a wooden womb.
3: Yeah. I mean, I don't... Yeah. I mean, he is... He's he's excited about the fact that, that uh, Count Dracula sleeps in the coffin. So to him, it's just a crib-sized object.
2: Well, that's, that's nice, yeah, because they can see beauty anywhere. And so, uh, yeah, it might be bad luck to get the coffin.
3: But I am going to order him the teeth. He wants the teeth. Oh, the teeth are easy.
0: One thing that really struck a chord with me this interview was Rick Moody's thoughts on fatherhood and what that taught him about writing. And I just wanted to share a brief excerpt from some prose writing I did that was inspired by Game of Thrones and talk about how it's connected to his thoughts on the subject and what conclusions I've been able to draw from this additional perspective. If love is the death of duty, then connection is the death of craft. By striking a balance between the two, one will subtly yield to the other. Now, when I wrote this, I was of the opinion, and to a certain degree, I'm still of the opinion that it's impossible for one to be completely committed to their craft and completely committed to the people in their life. And Rick Moody alluded to this by talking about how his life revolved around creative work, but being a father just wouldn't allow for that. But he also goes on to say that becoming better with his son allowed him to become better with people. And the paradox exists for me because as I've gotten older, I've come to see art as a case study of the human experience, but also the reason that we make art. I mean, I feel that art is meaningless unless it's shared with other people. So the paradox lies in the idea that one has to keep people at a distance for the sake of their art when these people reason for their art but the way rick moody kind of articulates this idea that it's not paradoxical but kind of codependent really struck a chord with me and was quite beautiful because he's it's kind of allowed me to see that these relationships and an understanding of these relationships is what strengthens art or rather being able to translate these relationships or these understandings into art is what makes it meaningful and what makes it connect with people. So both as an artist and as a person, I'm taking this sentiment to heart and this is something I want to apply in my life and in my work.
2: If you're just joining us, we're talking with writer Rick Moody. I,
1: I think Sorry, something interesting that you said a little while ago that really sort of struck me, talking about sort of parenthood and childhood, you say reading The Ice Storm again, that you now identify more with the parent's point of view than you do with the child's. And I'm I'm still trying to work out how exactly to phrase this question, but how is it that you can go back and you can actually read something in your own work that you may have intended to put there but that that didn't match who you were then but matches who you are now as if you're reading another author.
3: I mean the book's a fixed and closed thing. I can't <laughs> I can't change it now. I mean it's been 25 years since the Ice Storm came out. You know, I couldn't I couldn't rewrite it again if I wanted to because I'm not that person. But in the absence of being the person who could make the Ice Storm, I am nonetheless a person who could read the ice storm which you know i don't sit down and read my own stuff i'm i'm probably never going to reread the ice (laughs) storm. however occasionally someone needs something from me or wants me to read from it or wants to talk about a passage in it and so i'll read a few pages um and then there's also the film you know Mm um uh so I, I'm speaking only as a consumer of the book, not as the author of the book. And in that free space in which I'm not responsible for what's going to happen with it ever again, it's, it's easy for me to engage with it just as any other
1: reader would. Um, one question, and again, I, I feel I have to justify some of my more shallow questions uh, with, a, with a little anecdote of my own, which is that I think it was like October... I was like a month into your class and I went home and I, uh, I told my stepmom about some, uh, some assignment I was doing for Professor Moody and she did a practically a spit take in the kitchen and said, Rick Moody, the novelist? <laughs> um, and so I guess my question is, you know, you, you talk about people like Jeffrey Eugenides and Tom Parada, you're clearly sort of in an elite literary circle as it were. I mean to say, um, do you, but you are very ridiculously humble, such that when I went home and talked to my stepmom about that, uh, I didn't know that you were, quote-unquote, the Rick Moody. Um, my question is really, do you ever wake up feeling that you're the Rick Moody?
3: Sometimes I wake up and I feel like the basketball coach Rick Moody.
1: <laughs> How sad.
3: Just... I, I, there's no way for me to answer that. Fair enough. I, don't, I never think about that kind of stuff. I don't feel like... I don't even... In, in some ways, the Rick Moody who's on the title page of various books, I don't identify with that
1: person. How very Borges.
2: <laughs> well, how do you think uh, where you grew up, you, you, most of your childhood spent in Connecticut, and how did that imprint upon your imagination? And
3: I've sort of come around to, to a place of peace, um, uh, about Connecticut as a state now because I, I did, I've learned more about it and there are some parts that are sort of legitimately beautiful and fascinating. They were not the parts that I grew up in. Um, so I don't know. I have a, I have a grad student at Brown and he sent me a recording of driving through connecticut cities recently and i don't suppose he would be upset if i said this but um in a couple of the spots you can hear him going this town is so ugly and um and i definitely understand all of that so it's sort of like that thing that um bruce springsteen said about new jersey at one point i think he said um uh, when you say you're from New Jersey, it confers a responsibility nah. on you. And I feel that way about Connecticut. Like, the legacy of Connecticut is is um, complex, and, and it sort of confers a responsibility on me. Like, in a way, I'm the emblem of disagreeable privilege. Uh, and oh. I think it shaped my imagination in that way.
2: Oh, but then if you didn't... Well, I don't have this impression. I don't know Connecticut that deeply. although I have a project coming up there in um, July and August, and that's the Palabra Dance Company there. So, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of creativity in certain areas um, and some great um, schools. But so if you didn't find the ugliness, you wouldn't be searching for the beauty because if you're just surrounded by beauty and everything's agreeable, maybe you don't need to become an artist because life is so wonderful.
1: Well put. Uh, I... I wonder, actually, if I may put a question forth about Connecticut uh, as, as a fellow New Englander. Right. Um, again, I, I, I certainly... You,
3: you would have grown up in Connecticut, but you missed by about 10 miles. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: yeah, no, you're not wrong. Um, but my, my question is, uh, sort of Connecticut as a state is very small. Um, and, you know, the ice storm... Uh, and the hotels of North America, obviously, it's worldwide. Um, but Ice Storm literally encloses and makes sort of claustrophobic its characters. And I guess sort of to, to draw back to sort of an earlier to draw back to an earlier question about you know epics about problem solving, but also the epics again that we read in your class were often world cha- world shattering. It was about how to get as many, as much, pack as much meaning into a story as possible. And I guess, how does that, how, how does sort of this sense of Connecticut and New England and claustrophobia, how has that affected your writing? And how does that sort of, j- not jive, but how does that mesh with these epics that I know are sort of in your canon? That, yeah.
3: I mean, I read epic material probably as relief from the claustrophobia you know um but it's also true that we don't live in an age of epics Mm -hmm. like an epic now would be you know the avengers movies or game of thrones Mm -hmm. which to me are highly problematic texts you know i don't think of either of those things as being art particularly interesting um the game of thrones books for example which you know i tried to read the first one um it just wasn't an easy job for me um and i don't you know i don't necessarily mean that in a pejorative way i just mean that the that an epic scale does not necessarily mean that it's an epic fair enough um uh so the age of epics is no longer upon us and i think telling the deep human truths in an epic form that's something that happens only rarely nowadays um so for me writing on a sort of more uh on a, in a claustrophobic way as you say is simply to write about the environments that i knew well mm-hmm. and know well now um I would write an epic if I had had an epic life.
1: (laughs) I say.
2: But I was wondering, as someone who uses, you know, comedy in their, or the comic in their work, whether, you know, our current, um, and I don't want to get into some Trumpian hole, but whether what we're going through now, um, does that make it, the comedy, difficult to write when we're living through farce?
3: Yeah. I think it does. (laughs) and I'm a little worried about it. I mean, it's maybe not a... It's not a happenstance that I've written a completely serious book for the first time in 10 years um, and that it overlaps with the kind of dread seriousness of our current situation. I think what comedy is and what comedy can do, those things are in the process of changing and it's not clear what they're going to be or look like or what shape they'll have. And maybe I'm sort of waiting around to see what that impulse means um, in the coming year.
2: Right. So were you afraid to laugh sometimes? Because sometimes it is very comical what we're living through now. I mean, but I don't want to laugh, as you say, because it's so serious.
3: Yeah, sometimes I think there are things that I would... I love kind of the tragic comic and i like um moments when um you know awful things befall people and they're kind of earnest about it like chaplin and buster keaton and wc fields like that kind of comedy um and you know it's hard to know if that's not exploitative in, in an environment like we're in now um Or, what people's sensitivities are to that kind of thing. Um, So, I think it's better to sort of kind of stack a little bit and think about other ways of working.
2: Well, I hope I hope that the comedy always remains part of your writing, even though I know we have to have a reprieve, and the seriousness has always been there too. And you've always had this um, wonderful uh, balance in your work. And I I don't know, if, did you do you have something that you'd like to read?
3: I have this new story. It's called Fifty Two Descriptions of Flag Burning. Um, it's it's one description of flag burning for. Every state, including Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. So I'll just read you. They're very short. They're little short shorts uh, about each state. Um, uh, Here, I'll read you the one from Arizona. This is the first time this has ever been read out loud. Arizona as a man from a southern part of Asia who immigrated into this desert state into this community I feel strongly that this is a great and fortunate country and I am privileged to be in this country which welcomed me and which welcomed my beloved extended family the children I have raised here also my now elderly aunt and I like to hang a flag out front of the little red house that we are all living in because this flag keeps people from harassing us for example about documents I have patriotic sentiments but the flag is practical on one occasion when we were having a barbecue my family which in particular consists of my wife, the psychologist, and myself, the plant manager of petrochemical byproducts, and our two sons and two daughters, and the aforementioned aunt, was involved in cooking hamburgers and hot dogs, an American-style meal, to be sure. And suddenly I found myself getting angry for no good reason. Perhaps I did not have enough to eat that day, or I was dehydrated, or world events were distressing to me, so I just got the flag down down from the front of the house, and I doused it with the incendiary fluid which I had used to start the grill, and I held it over the open flame. Did I mention that this was the day on the calendar that is referred to in this country as Election Day? I believe the day was election day. It is to be expected, perhaps, in this state, which is a state of emptiness and of pavement, the two things, that election day would be a day on which one experiences feelings of a great knot of complexity, or so my wife put it to me later on when using the language of psychology to help me with my excessive feelings. Election day for persons such as myself can be a day of expansive feeling in this country and also a day of repulsion. That is my feeling, though I do not say these things to just anyone who inquires and would not now except that the recollection comes back to me. I was feeling what I was feeling about, for example, the traffic of the greater Phoenix area and the way that the traffic of the Phoenix area, its pavement, has a similar, has a feeling similar to large-scale infestation. In this state, I mean to say we experience infestation, and you have to check your shoes very carefully. And the traffic and election day and living in this nation when one's family lives abroad, these things are like a well-placed scorpion. Very quickly, on election day, the flag was engulfed in my backyard. My wife was really angry about this behavior, which she considered irresponsible and childish, but she also helped me to understand the feelings that one might have on election day. Nevertheless, I have to say that the flag looked beautiful, consumed like that, I would do it again
2: that's that's really beautiful, and I think that that's a yeah another you know example of using language to to care and to to put across the complexity of our emotions and not just you know uh, uh, thinking of a flag as an empty symbol, but all the all the stories behind us it. really, really wonderful. I think you know you've been so generous with your time, and I think I would just like to ask a question before we do the outro about your thoughts because this is an educational initiative and your thoughts about the future, the future of education. Um,
3: the thing that I've that I've come to feel about being at Brown for two years. Um, which is being back at Brown since I went here, um, uh, is that my sort of fundamental proposition about education, namely that it's not about the information imparted, it's about people being together in a room, um, I still feel like those things are true. And even even in this sort of hyper-partisan, sort of tinderbox moment of 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 contemporary politics i still feel like for example david and i sitting here david who was my student sitting here with me um and sort of being human beings sort of inquiring into certain questions together um exchange happens in that uh and that's a humanist thing and it's way more important than can I boil writing down to 20 propositions <laughs> and hand the sheet of paper to David and that would constitute a kind of learning. I don't believe in that. I believe in the human beings being together in the room and that there's something special about that, that that the academy leads us to a deep place um, and that that kind of education is still happening and still valuable. So that's what I think about it now in this very fraught environment.
2: Well, thank you so much, Rick Moody, for for all you've done, uh, sharing your insights about education through your writing, teaching us to care, to respect uh, individuals, lives, stories. All you've shared about being human and the complexity of life. through your write, not just through your writing, but through music um, and the, what you've uh, shared about the importance of the humanities. Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
0: The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michelsky Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was David Atter. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Poetry Month was composed and performed by Rick Moody. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.